Welcome to all of our virtual attendees. I am Suzanne Wilson-Heckenberg, President of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, INSA, and the Intelligence and National Security Foundation, NSIF. NSIF is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is dedicated to addressing contemporary intelligence and national security challenges, facilitating public discourse on the roles and the value of, the, of intelligence for our nation's security, and advancing the intelligence field as a career choice. Thank you for joining us today as NSIF launches a series of conversations focused on the future of the intelligence community workforce. We are pleased to be partnering with clearancejobs.com in this multimedia campaign and are delighted that Advantage Federal will be underwriting this worthy endeavor. We will be discussing how to forge and retain the most diverse, resilient, and innovative workforce possible. Over the next few weeks, we will examine remote work trends with an emphasis on workforce development and retention and the ways technology can support a hybrid work environment. Here to help kick off this important discussion, we're pleased to welcome former NSA Executive Director, Harry Coker, and Advantis Federal President and CEO, Andy Maynard. Throughout their careers, Harry and Andy have championed the need for the IC to reimagine the future work environment. Today, they will share their thoughts on the pros and cons of remote work and what steps the public, private, and academic sectors must take to build off the successes realized during this past year. We have a lot of ground to cover today. Now, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce the moderator of this series, Lindy Kaiser. Lindy is a senior editor of clearancejobs.com, the largest career site for professionals with an active federal security clearance. As a senior editor, Lindy covers the defense industry, the intelligence community, government and contracting trends for the Clearance Jobs news site, newsletters and media partners. Lindy, over to you. Thank you so much, Suzanne, and thank you, um, Harry and Andy, for being here for this conversation. Thank you, folks, who are joining us um, to watch this and to really launch a dialogue, which is the start of a conversation about the future of the intelligence community workforce. So as I kick it off and introduce Harry and Andy, um, I just really wanted to start off by um, asking a question that's one of my favorite questions to ask and get a little bit more information about your careers and how you got started. Um, I love a good how I got my start in government career story. So um, we'll kick off with you, Harry, just to introduce yourself a little bit. We know you were the um, former executive director at the National Security Agency, CIA, military career. Tell me a little bit more about how you got started there. What made you pursue government service and what kept you there for a career? Okay. Um, first off, thank you for having me and uh, to all all of you out there in the virtual space, uh, delighted to uh, share some time with you and uh, looking forward to learning, uh, both from Lindy and Andy. Um, as for me, um, it all started, I think, in Parsons, Kansas. Uh, at least that's where I was born. Uh, but uh, that, that is my hometown. I'm very proud of that. Um, I started my public service, uh, frankly, uh, because my father bribed me. Uh, I was interested in, in leaving my small hometown, but I had very few options. Um, and uh, the Naval Academy came knocking, and I, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't so thrilled on that, but my father being a career um, uh, Navy enlisted uh, 
remember? Um, said, okay, uh, how about uh, your second semester, your senior year of high school, I get, I lease you a car. And I said, sold. Um, so I actually began my public service for the wrong reasons. Uh, I continued it, I like to think, for the right reasons. Um, and so I followed in my father's footsteps a bit, and I followed in my mother's footsteps uh, as well. Uh, she was a public servant. And then the last thing I'll say about me is that uh, you know, I did go to the Naval Academy. Um, just very proud uh, to be a member of the class in 1980. And the significance of that class is that is the first class that, uh, that had women at the U.S. Uh, service academies. Uh, hard to believe. Um, you know, in 1976, when I, when I uh, matriculated to the Naval Academy, that is when our great country uh, finally uh, allowed women uh, to serve at the, uh, the service academies. Uh, we were very late in getting there. Uh, we got to the right place uh, and we are better for it. Uh, and again, so I'm, I'm just proud and delighted to have been um, a classmate uh, of those, those fine uh, women. Awesome. You are a part of history. That's amazing. So thank you for your service and thank you for being a part of this conversation. Now I'll ask you the same question, Andy. So Avantis Federal um, is where you're at now, but obviously not where you started in government service. So what got you kind of, um, you know, to this type of work and what's kept you there for a career? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll echo Harry's comments. Lindy, you always have so much energy for this this topic. So thank you for hosting and thanks to Suzanne who works tirelessly on behalf of this mission. Uh, my journey to pub public sector was pretty random. I didn't have a plan and I was a naive Midwesterner. And so I wrote a letter uh, for 40 days uh, to the White House, uh, just literally to the White House asking for a job. And I was able to secure a, a great job with Marlon Fitzwater, who was press, press secretary to George H.W. Bush. So my public sector journey uh, started there, uh, working for President Bush for a number of years in which I also accompanied him to his private life after we uh, after the election of 1992. So my, uh, career group began under the tutelage of a DCI, a former DCI, and it really went from there uh, into his personal office. Uh, and then, as I say, I did such an amazing job there. Uh, I later went to Somalia as a civilian and really became uh, a consumer of intelligence. Uh, and it really kicked off my whole career, which I've stayed in both the public sector and the private sector uh, pretty much all the way through. I, uh, I did go back into government after 9-11, in fact, the day after 9-11, uh, and helped uh, Governor Ridge and others uh, begin to form the concept of the Department of Homeland Security, which is where I later became the CFO. Uh, but now, like many of the viewers of this, I'm in the private sector. I still feel as attached to the mission, as, if not more on some days, that I have a role to play. Our company has a role to play in our nation's security. So happy to discuss workforce uh, uh, because and this remote situation, because I think it's the most important topic facing us. Awesome. So, okay, we know Harry's Kansas. I'm Iowa. Andy, Michigan. where? Michigan. Michigan and Midwest. It's a Midwest call. We like we like the coast as well from other places, but there is something about us Midwesterners. We get really excited to come to Washington D.C. and give back and pursue, um, you know, pursue giving back. I don't, maybe it's because we wanted to leave our home states, or it's we just started very patriotic. Um, so you talked. You you kind of got launched this conversation a little bit, Andy. You mentioned um, you know the strategic partnership. So we 
private, public sector working together. Again, this conversation about the future of the IC workforce, and really we've seen that manifest usually in this coronavirus response, where I think the public and private sector have come together to innovate, to find solutions. Congress is working, you know, to, to create legislation, to um, help contractors change their contracts, um, because that was a big push that needed to be made. Um, so kind of talk about that. What are some of the lessons learned between um, government, private sector working together? And why has kind of this coronavirus post-COVID um, been this catalyst for, for government and private sector working together. I'll, I'll start with you, Harry, and then Andy, have you touch on that as well? Uh, you know, I, I'm frequently looked at as a, um, a negative person because I like to always say, well, what can we do better? And we always have to push, but inevitably um, crises arise. In this case, it was a pandemic and, and we had to uh, take care of our, our folks, but we also had to take care of the mission space. And when I say mission space in this context, it's public sector and private sector. Um, so we, we had to, to do that. It, it, it was a, a, a bit of a shake, a jar to the system. Folks were, were thinking, wow, how can we take care of these critical missions with, pick your percentage, one third of the workforce or one and a half or whatever the percentage is. And um, therefore we would have said, can't do it, impossible. But again, the crisis forced us to take a look at how we can do things. I, I just left one of my former agencies and was talking to a former colleague, and, and he, he told me that they have not dropped the ball on, on what he called um, no-fail short-term missions, um, those threats to the homeland, um, those who would do our national in interest harm. Uh, those those missions are going unabatedly. Uh, we have uh, accepted some risk, but you know, frankly, that, that's what leaders and managers do. Uh, they they manage risk as a, as opposed to avoid risk, uh, and that's something that, that happens uh, on both sides of that equation, public and, and private sector. Uh, if you don't take risk, again, we're not going to be as good as we need to be. Uh, we have offloaded some functions that that we. Typically said, oh, it's classified. I'm at this, this secret agency, so essentially everything I do has to be classified. Well, wrong. Um, you know, there, there's a, a certain amount of research, you know, foundational scientific research that can be handled in an unclassed manner. Um, cybersecurity, uh, which is significant uh, for the world. Um, so much of that is done uh, in, in the unclassed environment as it should. Now, there's a lot that's done in the uh, classified environment, but frankly, we need to take a look at whether all of that has to be done there. Uh, but th those are just a couple of areas where, where we were pushed uh, to be more creative on doing remote remote working. And again, uh, from my optic, uh, what I've read in the media um, and, and just talking to colleagues, we, we have not dropped the ball. Uh, we've gotten better. We've accepted some risk. Uh, and I just hope that in a post-COVID environment, whenever we get there, we'll continue to, to move forward on, on different ways to uh, ro work remotely. It, it's gonna uh, enhance the quality of life of, of all of our folks. And so Andy, the same question, just kind of from your CEO federal contracting seat, how have you seen, you know, maybe your government partners responding to this and how have you worked together in ways that have been innovative and, and different? Yeah, I, I often uh, like to start at the macro challenge and the macro challenge before COVID was that we now have 
over with five generations of people in our workforce. Uh, and those people, those from those generations all work differently. So as Harry alludes to, this was happening. This was going to happen. Uh, being uh, sitting five days in a windowless office forever with no comms device, the outside world is was probably going to be hard to sustain over decades. So one, I think we have to embrace this as a, a change that was coming. And I think, as Harry alluded, we have to address this. And, and if it took a crisis, uh, fine. Uh, but this is this has to be done. And the pandemic made it made it so. I do like to draw a quick distinction because we like to use the word virtual work. Uh, we have found in our company, we don't like the term remote work as much because remote makes me feel, makes a person feel, I'm not actually in the mission, I'm remote from it, where virtual is, I'm just accomplishing in a, a different way. So as we come together, public-private partnerships to, to solve this, I think we should think of it as virtual work uh, and ask the questions that Harry said. I think the final piece uh, as, a, as an optimist on these things is that I've now, I'm so old that I've now been here during uh, changes where everyone said it couldn't be done. And the one I remember pretty vividly uh, because I had a foot in the Intel community and a few at DHS was that everyone said the interagency community shouldn't grow after 9-11 uh, because we're set. Everyone knew who the partners were. But then after 9-11, we realized there was new producers of Intel in law enforcement, Homeland Security, customs, and there was new consumers of it. And was it easy? Absolutely not. Was there a lot of um, tension? Yes. Was there a lot of pain? Absolutely. But it happened. And I think we as a government uh, and the contractors are better for it. So I think it's inherently doable, but we have to see it as a workforce challenge, not just this COVID thing. And, and Lindy, I'm really glad you mentioned that uh, legislation that, that folks are taking a look at to, to help out uh, the private sector and some of those contracts. You know, typically we focus on on the public sector side of the house and don't don't treat our uh, essential um, private sector partners as partners and teammates. Uh, we, we don't get it done uh, without a tight partnership. So it's only right. And, and frankly, uh, it's only going to be effective uh, when we take care of the entire team. So thanks for, for mentioning that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think the, like you said, the challenges are opportunities for all of these different pieces. I think we think, you know, the federal government has this mission to accomplish. It can't do its mission well unless the private sector is functioning correctly, unless Congress is functioning correctly, unless, you know, it takes, it takes, it takes all branches kind of working um, to get things done. And I think I appreciate your mentioning to the, the virtual remote work um, piece of it, Andy, and even the semantics around it. And I think also too, when we think about future of IC work, um, we tend to think all or nothing. So everything is, if it's virtual work, it's I'm never in an office. But what we're seeing now, I think the future of work is how we could have these, I think you both have mentioned kind of the hybrid models. Uh, Lindy, I, I'm a little bit off topic, but I just wanted to quote from a, there's a McKinsey study that came out. I, I'm not the smartest to think of this, but they, they, they surveyed mission leaders and CEOs, not necessarily government. And they said, how, how is the COVID situation affecting how you lead? And the data came back four things. Crisis, I'm doing more crisis response. I'm doing way more to manage the stress, mental, physical, on my organization. I'm doing way more to deal with remote leadership and work challenges. And finally, 
heightened external stakeholder management. How do I now communicate with my ecosystem that I cannot see them? Well, those four things are all what we're talking about today. So whether it's happening in our Intel community or in the Fortune 500, we all face the same problem. And I think we can learn a lot from the private sector and vice versa on this. So the first thing we have to do as an Intel community is, is, is say, we are truly not alone. Everyone is facing a version of this challenge. For sure. And then Harry, so maybe maybe you could speak to the um, government side of this. I'm I'm curious if you ever had conversations when you were in government with the NSA. Was remote work something they even discussed? You know, back then. Um, I feel like NSA of all agencies is is, is not is not going to be super responsive to something like that. But we know that they've kind of been forced to consider it with this COVID nineteen. Um, but was it a conversation that was happening and now it's, it's, we're seeing it move forward or kind of how has the paradigm shift happened with pre-COVID, post-COVID and what the future looks like? Yes, it, the uh, conversation had actually uh, started uh, very naturally. You know, our, our, our workforce, you know, tens of thousands of uh, patriots, uh, they, they expressed their interest multiple times in multiple ways about uh, the possibilities of having you know, virtual uh, work you know, away from the, the headquarters building, and it took us a while to uh, <laughs> to, to get on board there. Uh, but it should not have. And so much of what Andy was just talking about was about leadership, and you know, leaders need to listen to their folks uh, and and know what inspires uh, the team to get things done. And we got the message loud and clear. Uh, so uh, I'm pleased to say that there was progress being made on, on, on virtual work. It was absolutely accelerated uh, due to the pandemic, uh, but it, it, it started from the, from the bottom up, uh, which is uh, the way so many problems uh, get solved when we, when we listen to our folks to pay attention and address those challenges uh, that are brought forward. Uh, you know, along with that, uh, even our classified work, we, we had to and need to take a look at Everything doesn't need to be in a top secret facility, okay? Uh, a, a lot of the, the classified work can be done in something less than a top secret facility, uh, which would lessen a lot of the, the infrastructure requirements, if you will. Uh, so there's, there's a lot more space for us to be uh, creative um, and, and still accomplish all of our missions. Okay, you're, you're making me put my clearance jobs geek hat on Harry. So I feel like there's correlations here so much with what we've talked about with like controlled unclassified information. You know, there's there the, there are classification levels for a reason. And then there's also a lot of, this is big in the private sector now with the insider threat issues. You have a ton of information that's not even classified, but that's usually, usually sensitive that you have to keep safe. So I think this is highlighted every worker, government, private sector, whatever has access to information we're giving them access to that information already, and we just need to be, you know, know what's classified and what isn't, the policy around that. And if it doesn't need to be classified at the top secret level, why, you know, why is it classified um, that way? And that points to, you know, how the policy may or may not change in response to this. But we've seen and the insider threat stuff has been going on for a decade and has paved the way for us to get here. And, and you mentioned, you know, something may or may not be appropriately classified. I'll, I'll put it. <laughs> um, you know, I've worked at places where essentially we had a default classification. Uh, you know, 
as inappropriate as that was, uh, we erred on the on the side of overclassifying. But it was more than just error. It was default. We essentially said it's going to be at this very high level and it's going to exclude th these type of people. Uh, and we did that. We were taught that essentially, um, not in classes, but in action. We, we saw how we operated and let's let's overclassify. Um, sad to say, but 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 that's accurate. And, and we need to address that. The culture, our security culture can accommodate appropriate classification. We wouldn't give people clearances if we didn't trust them. For sure. And then I want to go back to kind of what you mentioned before to Andy about leadership, because I, I think that's, that is absolutely critical. We talk about that a ton at clearance jobs. What makes people leave their jobs, government or private sector, is that they hate their boss predominantly. I mean, it's money or it's, it's culture, which is, which is leadership driven. Um, so, you know, Again, you kind of teed this up before, but how how have leaders really had to respond um, to making this future IC workforce happen? And what else still needs to be done? What advice would you give to companies, leaders, agencies who want who want to make you know make this a viable career path into the future in this environment? Sure. Well, the the first part is the the best part, and the easy part is we we all have the privilege to work on the greatest mission, not in government, greatest mission in the world for the greatest country in the world. So you start with that uh, and you move from there. I do believe that talent and all of these generations of the workforce, they have the right to have their own personal career path. And that includes professional development, new skills, certifications. And this is both in government and in the private sector. We have to reward people for that. We have to encourage it. And so the way we do it is the way we handle all of our colleagues, our over 1,000 colleagues, is through something we call the ITM framework, which is integrated talent management. And it deals with attracting talent, managing talent, uh, how you develop it, how you grow it, how you optimize it. And you literally make it so that all every single employee, it's not that hard, has their own path. Uh, and so we put a lot into it. And it's not enough anymore to just get a cleared person, hire them, and then just, they'll be in the skiff five days a week, wish them luck, and you'll see them at the Christmas party. This is an ingrained thing and the, it's changing generationally. So I wanna demystify it, that it has to be so hard, but I do think you have to be super committed to it. Uh, and we've helped, We've helped agencies implement RITM because they're asking us, how are you doing it? How do you measure it? All of those things. So let's demystify it. It's not that hard. We just have to attack it. And, and, and we can learn a lot of lessons from each other on that. Government gets a bad rap about not necessarily being responsive. Um, that definitely like a, if I can't see you, you're not working culture. Um, have you seen leaders kind of respond to this and say, no, we, we have to we have to lead people differently and adjust their best practices? Uh, absolutely. Um, lead differently. So uh, that, that, that's that been a key. Um, you know, we, we lead people and, and we manage things and systems. Got to have both. But, you know, lead, leadership, it really is the foundation. Uh, what what inspires our folks professionally and personally? Just because we're at uh, in a workplace, that does not mean we should uh, discount. Uh, folks' personalities or their, or their personal uh, desires, what they need to, to be motivated and inspired to, to accomplish uh, the mission. Um, so 
and just listening to our people. We, we have bright people. Uh, they have great ideas, and we, we, we need to take them on board, uh, not necessarily do everything they say, but listen to everything they say. And there's opportunities for that. Uh, again, remote, uh, virtual working is one of those things that, at least uh, where I work, it, it came from the bottom up, and, and we've made uh, good progress on that front. And another, another thing about you know, um, doing some of the work, unclassified or lower classified work uh, virtually you know, that can help with the, the clearance process as well. Uh, getting people on board. We lose too many good people uh, because they don't have the time to wait or there may, be, may have been a hiccup in the past. Uh, they might not get the highest clearance, but they can get a clearance and still make contributions. So we need, you know, we, we talk in development about agile development. Well, we need agile leadership as well. Uh, it's case by case. You can't paint with this uh, broad broad stroke, uh, a brush. We're going to miss too many opportunities if we do that. Now let's talk about the critical mid-level career professional because I do, and now you can argue with the moderator is always allowed. So if I'm wrong, tell me. Um, but I generally argue that young people are very still interested in government careers and interested in, in you know, they're attracted to the mission. Um, there are cool things being had. There's people like us who are from the Midwest who just want to leave. So attracting talent is not always the problem, but retaining them is a is a huge issue. Um, we're seeing the pushback kind of at clearance jobs saying, hey, can government keep up? Because, I mean, a lot of the Silicon Valley companies may never go back to the office full time. So you do, you will start to have this disparity where a lot of other offices are remote. Government might be more of a hybrid model. Um, do you see any, any workforce issues with retention and how are you, how are you kind of looking to address those? We'll start with you, Andy. Well, like I said, I mean, this is, this is where the battle's going to be fought. Uh, this, this is, this is the talent is so exceptional now. Harry referenced it, the, the skills that are coming out of our universities. And, and so we can sit around and as, as older generations go, oh, I walked both ways uphill to school. What are you done? You shouldn't, no one should think of it that way. These folks are talented and you get them at their mid-level career. Uh, they're just at that perfect moment. But we have to ask ourselves, do, does our mission require it? I, Harry told the greatest story. Like we used to all just classify everything as high as we could so no one would ever see it. Instead, I think we need to look at it and say, first, the first thing we should do is say, how did we do, do during COVID? Like, let's actually take the last nine months and go and work private partnership. INS is perfectly uh, capable and, and, and dying to do that. Let's just do a case study. We don't need to imagine it. We've just done it. What worked? What didn't work? Where did we find a problem? Were there classification errors? Were there uh, unnecessary uh, leaks of, of any kind? So I think we need to case study it. Uh, but I think we have to be realistic to say, does does anyone who wants to work in the Intel community, do they want to be in a windowless office for five days straight, no comms devices, and do they want to be in D.C. and Virginia, in the DMV? Maybe they don't. Maybe they actually want to live in Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa. Uh, and is that, is that, so that's, so I think this is a must have, and I think we're at a really unique time. Uh, as we all said in the beginning, nothing spurs action like a crisis. We're in it. Uh, so I think it's all about careers and about career development and mid-level people in their careers make decisions every day. Uh, if they're good, 
They have 10 opportunities in government, 10 opportunities out of government. Every single day we wake up. So Lindy, you said it perfectly. What's the first thing is, hey, what's my lifestyle like? Two, what's my manager like? And three, am I moving forward? We just have to answer those three questions uh, in order to retain these, these good, very, very hardworking, committed people. And, and I'll just add, you know, something we, we have to take a look at, um, as opposed to, you know, these gray beards um, who did it their way, like, like everybody else did, 40, 40 year careers in the government or 30 years. And we used to look down our noses at, at folks who would come in for five years and decide to do something else. That is perfectly fine. Uh, but, but, you know, we didn't like that. Uh, and we, need, we need to get over that. There are um, individuals need to live their lives, okay? We, we cannot do it for them. And they can have great careers doing whatever they choose. They don't need to be and they should not be uh, like us. But, you know, those, those folks who want to leave after five years or however many years, allow them to leave but keep the door open. You know, there, I almost said there's nothing wrong. There is something very positive about diversity of experiences, uh, going elsewhere, bring, and, and actually taking lessons somewhere else, and then bringing lessons back. You know, you know diversity is, is an important word and does, does not just apply to um, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, and all those traditional um, modes of diversity. It, it, it applies to a diversity of experiences uh, and, and ways of thinking as well. So. The government needs to be more open to folks leaving government service and going to do whatever they choose to do and being able to welcome them back. Um, I dare say they're going to be better uh, when they come back should they decide to do so. And, but, but that's a mindset uh, that we have to adjust. I, I would also say, Lindy, that, you know, having been in this decades now, we 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 feel the goodness like it, it's possible. First of all, let's salute the Intel community and INSA for coming together so immediately after March and working on sections 3610. I mean, absolutely just huge for the Intel community and huge for our workforce to be able in the contractor side to communicate to them saying, hey, it's OK, we can handle a, a blue gold schedule or whatever it is. I mean, that is public-private partnership, and it was within weeks. So we, we have to salute the work that the community did with Congress and INSA and other important voices in the world uh, to kind of move move these things, these concepts forward. So I don't feel stuck in the mud. And I would also say the blue, the blue badge, green badge world, our people feel part of the mission. They feel it like they work there. And I think we've done a very good job in government, the government's done a very good job of making our people feel as important to that mission, whatever color their badge is. And I, people deserve a lot of credit for that because it'd be easy to get stuck in your ways as Harry talked about it. it it's evolving. Yeah, you, you make a great point. I was actually have, just having this conversation with somebody on my team that we used to write a lot at clearance jobs, even about government versus, you know, federal government versus government contracting. And we would, we would actually use it to kind of get a debate going. It was like the Capulets versus the Montagues. And you were like, oh, who's who's better? And like, who gets paid more? Who, you know, who? I feel like that has shifted. I don't I don't see that infighting as much. I'm, sh I'm sure internally still program managers are still, I mean, you're still going to vying for the same talent pool and want the best people. But I don't think we see that dynamic as 
as much. I think people see that there are benefits to both sides and to government's credit, I feel like they've, ODNI has been talking about those on and off ramps for at least five years and making that process easier. And whether it has from a candidate side, there's still some survivor factor at play, but you, you still feel that you're not going to get dinged on either side, I think, for making that transition back and forth. Um, we're heading towards kind of the end of the arc of the conversation, but obviously the main framework we're talking about is um, risks and benefits. So I did want to ask you both, as we head into this post-COVID virtual working environment, um, what do you kind of see as the biggest risk and the biggest benefit that, that we need to address or just that we need to be aware of? Or that maybe we are we already are addressing. Well, I'll I'll kick us off uh, age before beauty, I guess, Harry. But I I, I want to just quote from the McKinsey study again as a place for me to jump off because uh, I think that the same survey, uh, hundreds of CEOs, agency leaders, very very broad, and then the question was, how are you leading differently in COVID, or what lessons should we take from COVID? and apply to non-COVID was really the thrust of this next question. Four things, and these are hard to argue with. Move even faster, break through traditional organizational boundaries, be even more intentional with a bias to action and set the tone from the top. While those sound really uh, high up, that's motherhood and apple pie and we We've done that during COVID. Both the private sector and the public sector have done those four things. Bias towards action, breaking through traditional organizational boundaries. Is there anything more than what we're talking about here? Clearances, badge colors, careers, back and forth, double dips. This has all been a part of our world for a long time. And so we've practiced some really good things in COVID. Let's institutionalize them. And this virtual work, is one we have to work on. And I think ENSA's very, very well positioned to be a leading voice in that. It's happening. It's not going away. Uh, people have, are used to it in some cases and and we're more effective with it. So let's, uh, let's really embrace that and let's not just use this as a temporary crisis would be my thought. And I'll add, you know, I'm, I'm delighted that we spent a lot of time talking about the public and private sector partnership, uh, because that's what it has to be uh, for our nation's security. Uh, oftentimes, however, when I have a conversation like this, folks will ask, uh, how do you compete with the private sector? And, you know, I've, I've come to believe that, you know, it's, it's not a competition per se. You know, we, we need to complement each other. You know, I can't say it enough. You know, private sector is a part of our national power, and they the private sector is key to our national security. So we, we need to complement each other as opposed to compete. Uh, we need to make sure that our, our, our students are, are educated in, in the areas that, that are gonna count the most. And, and that's, that's not a public sector issue. Uh, it's not a private sector issue. It's an American issue that we have to deal with. Now, more directly to your, to your risk and benefit question. Um, one, one thing that concerns me, and it taps right back into what we've been discussing so much, leadership. Uh, Andy just named those four things. My memory is so short, I can't remember them all, uh, but I do know that they resonated with me and I absolutely believe in them. Um, but on, the, on that leadership side uh, of, of virtual um, work, 
uh, a concern I have, and it is certainly not insurmountable, but it is absolutely imperative, is staying in touch with our folks uh, when we're not seeing them every day. Uh, we're bad enough as it is on providing feedback uh, when we see people every day. We still uh, are reluctant to, to give the timely uh, and accurate and meaningful feedback. I, I, I'm concerned about the way that'll go if we're not seeing folks every day. Uh, also concerned about the wellness of, of our people if we're not seeing them every day. Uh, we need to take care of that. And then last thing I did tell you all, I'm a negative person, uh, so I have a lot more uh, cons, um, is the relationships. Um, you know, I'm from Kansas. Uh, we got Michigan and Iowa represented here. Uh, at least in Kansas, I suspect throughout the Midwest, and this is pre-COVID. We like to shake hands, and we like to look you in the eye, and and you know, and get a sense for your character. Okay, uh, we haven't been able to do that since since March, but nonetheless, we're going to get through COVID. Uh, but as we go towards more virtual work, and, and I absolutely think we ought to, we can't lose track of the, the power and the necessity of relationships and how that contributes to collaboration in the sense of teamwork. So those are some risks that, that good leadership uh, can and will address. Um, but I had to put out, that out there to maintain my reputation as a negative person. Um, and then on the benefit side, it, it comes right back down to, to our people. Uh, it, it, it is about, you know, we always talk about people and mission. Um, let's enhance the, the quality of life of our folks. And it's professional and personal by allowing more virtual uh, work. And frankly, I think we'll do better on the mission front uh, with more virtual work because uh, the better off our folks are, the, the better uh, our work products will be and the better our mission outcomes will be. Perfect, thank you guys so much. And I did, I don't want to lose you before I do ask for a few examples maybe that you could give from your experiences of um, how this is being done well, um, things that folks can emulate when they're looking at, you know, making this this work, um, whether specific agencies that have really responded and done it well. I know, Harry, you had some, you know, maybe some examples of what you'd seen, um, or Andy, kind of just that responsiveness, um, some of those best practices or takeaways. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, just a couple, like, we've really focused a lot on changing the model and the paradigm, uh, which is around professional and leadership development, how people are able to learn. We invested heavily ahead of COVID, thank, thank goodness, in a learning development platform. Our people, especially our cleared people, our deeply cleared people on their off weeks took so much professional development off of our Udemy platform. Thousands and thousands of hours, new certifications. Uh, so to the point uh, that Harry made, people are actually getting better during COVID and they're still virtual, uh, you know? So we invested heavily in that. We brought in speakers weekly. Uh, we have board members who are former Intel professionals like Sue Gordon, et cetera, speaking to our young leaders about these topics we're talking about today. It means a lot to them. Um, so on the private sector side, that's that's where, where we're spending a lot of our time. Now in the old, uh, and just to kind of keep it light a little bit, in the old world of holiday parties, which sometimes people dreaded. Uh, we had some of the greatest holiday activities this December. I feel more connected to our workforce. I feel like I talked 
to all thousand of our people. Whereas if I were at an event, I would have talked to 5% of them. So we just invented new ways to kind of connect with people. I totally wildly agree with Harry's point about their well-being and their families. We instituted new benefits that we called COVID benefits. Uh, so people could use a stipend to get their office ready or their kids' school ready. Like we just went for it. We didn't ask permission. There was no handbook for it. We just did it. Uh, now that's easier in the private sector, potentially, but maybe not. It, so it all comes down to leadership. Uh, but again, I don't want to, I want to make sure it's known that the agencies that we do work at, uh, McLean and others that have moved so quickly on 3610, it made the difference. It would have, it would have decimated our workforce and they held that cadre of reservists, if you will, in such a professional way. Uh, so I salute what's been done, uh, but I want to institutionalize it. And one example I'll, I'll provide is a, a former colleague and, and good friend of mine. I went to see him a uh, week before last. Uh, I think it was about 2.30 in the afternoon. And they told me he was uh, gone, uh, gone home. Uh, he works really crazy hours. Um, so I came back five o'clock and uh, he was there. Turns out that, you know, given uh, the pandemic and, and the agility of, of uh, the leadership um, at that agency, they allow uh, this, this uh, fellow to come in bright and early. I think it was like 3.30 in the morning. Uh, and, and he is, he is a, a formal leader and manager as well, not, not just uh, a singleton. But he comes in at 3.30 and works till I think 6.30 in the morning, 0.3.30, 0.6.30. Then he goes home um, and his spouse goes to work and, and he gets their son ready uh, for, for virtual school. And he takes his son through virtual school in the morning and then his spouse comes home and they do their handoff. And, and that, that fellow comes back um, to, to that agency later in the day. Uh, and he was telling me how, how delighted he was when his leadership team allowed him to have that, I shouldn't use the word broken schedule because that's a fixed schedule, but that disjointed schedule. And, but that's just an example of the type of things that we can do uh, regardless of the crises. It makes sense, it helps our workforce and it helps our families and bottom line, it takes care of our mission. Love that example. It's near and dear to my heart. We, uh, I worked for a government for the government for a while, and I have bringing us full circle back to your conversation about women in the in the military. Remote work was approved at my agency for a while, and they had a training on it. And inexplicably, all of the women got cardoned off and told and advised that it, that remote work was not supposed to take the place of childcare. And for, for me, I noticed that there were no men in that room <laughs> that were being like pulled aside and reminded of that. Um, and I do feel like there is something about this, this COVID workforce that, I mean, everybody, you know, one team, one fight here, we're all coming together. And, and so if you're a couple parents chucked at home with your kids, doesn't matter if you're a mom or a dad or who, whoever you are, you're having to educate and work and balance it all. Um, but it did seem, you know, that was more than a decade ago when I remember that conversation. It just stood out that um, that they had they had highlighted, you know, and called a few of us aside and thought we might need we might need a reminder. Um, but it, that was a very gender specific conversation. So, um, but we've Lindy, come a long way. Lindy, you know the data. Lindy, the data is so 
uh, uh, so concerning about women in the workforce. The Fed has said that almost 10 million women are making the, the, the choice to leave the workforce because they think they have to. This would devastate our industry if that trend happened here. So, I mean, we're talking about one group there, but the data is really compelling that people believe they have to make that choice that you just talked about. And we're both saying you don't. Uh, and we have to make it so that choice never is on the table. And that is that is just such a powerful uh, mantra we all have to rally around. Yeah, you need the, the diversity within the IC is certainly a strength. And we say that. And this is kind of a, a, a point where we can put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, um, and say, how how important is it? Like, because you got to you got to you actually have to make accommodation <laughs> so, so everybody can work. Right. Yeah. We need we need to take advantage of the largest talent pool we can get. And, you know, those accommodations are key to keeping a large and capable talent pool. Thank you again so much for being, you know, a part of this conversation. Thank you so much to Avantis Federal um, for underwriting this conversation. Really appreciate your leadership on this topic. You're passionate about it. I can tell that. And I just love that. I mean, thank you to the Intelligence and National Security Foundation for sponsoring this. I just love that INSA has this foundation aspect, a nonprofit arm that can do really cool, exciting things like this. Um, they're not just promoting the intelligence community workforce, they're really making investments to make it better. So definitely check out INSIF and the things that they're doing um, and join us for the next parts of this conversation. We didn't, if you're watching this and you're like, why didn't you talk about how much people are going to screw it up with their technology and cybersecurity? That's because that's part three. And the next part is about the workforce. So this is just the first of future conversations about this. And um, we certainly also welcome feedback. So engage with us, send your feedback. We'll have options for doing that for how we can continue to make this program better. It's the best part of launching a series of conversations is that we can continue um, to kind of move this conversation forward.